And open your Bibles to, to James chapter 5. We won't stay there long, but this is our basic scripture. And it's so important because it really is, it's God speaking to the church, not just then, but to today. James 5, let's look at, start back on verse 14, and then our main verses in verse 16. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will, not might, will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Confess your faults or trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That includes That is primarily physical healing, but includes all kinds of wholeness. And this is the part of the verse we're talking about. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we've looked at the fact that a righteous man does not necessarily mean somebody who's always right. It means someone who's been made right in God's eyes. And when you come to Christ, that old man died and a new man was born in you, that new man or woman is born out of God's nature. And, and Jesus actually, 2 Corinthians 5.21, says he makes an exchange with you. He took your sin upon himself and gave you his righteousness. So the righteousness that we wear, the righteousness that we bring before God is not a righteousness we earned. It's a righteousness that's been given to us and it is none other than Jesus' righteousness which he did earn. So that's why we can have boldness and confidence. It's not in ourselves. See, the enemy will talk to you and say, why would you think God would answer your prayers? He knows things you said today. He knows things you've done. He knows, you know, the attitude that you had yesterday at work. He knows, he knows all these things about you. But Jesus our righteousness is not based on how we've acted. It's based on how Jesus acted. And that's the righteousness he's given to us because I don't care how good a day you had yesterday. I don't care how perfect you were today. You're not good enough to be righteous on your own in God's eyes. So we never get there. On your best day, you don't even begin to come close. And neither do I. But he's given us his righteousness. So you can just check that one off. We qualify if you've come to Christ. And we've looked at the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. And if you, if you read that without looking into it a little bit, it sounds as if it's how we pray. So fervent prayer means, and sometimes many people talk about it's hot and it's on fire, but that's all focused on me. That's all focused on how I'm praying. And we're learning effective prayer is not based on how I'm praying. In fact, it has nothing to do with me at all other than learning to flow with God. The word fervent there means powerful in its working. It's the Greek word energeo, which means it has power, it is working effectively. So really what this is saying is that, that the prayer that produces much is, the, is a prayer that's already at work when you pray. And this is one of the things we're going to learn a little bit down the road, that you've got to understand that when you pray, Assuming we, assuming that, 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 that we're following the principles, and, and I'll show you what those are. But when, and they're simple. When you pray, you've got to understand they're already working. They're already working. And what we do is we, we pray, we say the words, and then we look to see the results, to decide whether the prayers are working. And that's the wrong way to do it because that's like planting seed in the ground to grow your roses or whatever it is you're going to grow, and then the next day you dig them up to see if it germinated. Because when you dig it up, what happens? You kill it, you, or you stop the process of the germination. 
And so we're going to learn that the, one of the keys to, 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 to prevailing prayer is understanding that when you pray, it's at work. Your prayers are at work whether you've seen the answers or not yet. That's what that mean, word means. And then he goes on to say, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails, accomplishes much. It ought to be the exception when we don't see answers to our prayer. And then he goes on to give this amazing example, just to encourage us. Elijah was a man of like nature as ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. Then he prayed again three years and six months later, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And he's a man from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, he didn't have the Spirit of God in him. He had to come upon him to do certain things. So that's our background. Then we went back, and last week we got over into Matthew 6. So turn there, and things kind of exploded at this point in a good way. Let's start in verse 5 and read down there again. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's the, in, uh, in chapter 4 there's a great meeting and people are being healed, and then Jesus um, withdraws and comes up the mountain, and his disciples follow him. And he begins to talk to them. And he begins to, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. But I used to picture the Sermon on the Mount of being given to thousands upon thousands of people. But it was basically his staff that had come up there. And he's teaching the principles of the kingdom of God. We're going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 5. We talked about this last year week, but I want to kind of get our momentum going again. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corner of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So the first thing he's talking about here is the motive for prayer. And he said, if your motive is for anything other than to get an answer, your motive's wrong. And we talked last time, it could be, you know, I want people impressed with how I pray. And I was raised in churches where people were impressive with how they pray. They spoke, as one preacher said, perpendicular. Thou, O great God of the heavens, almighty, powerful God. And I just imagine he must stick his fingers in his ear. At least, you know, I just can't. You can't impress God. So we shouldn't even try. So first, for the first motive that's wrong is trying to impress God. A second motive that's wrong, which is what he's talking about here, is trying to oppress others. A third motive that's wrong is trying to impress ourselves with how we pray. Prayer is asking God with the type of prayer. There are other types of prayer. There's a prayer of consecration. There's prayer of just communing with God. There's prayers of worship. But we're talking about prayers are asking God to do something. <clears throat> and so those kind of prayers have as their exclusive motive to get answers. I've told you the story before. I remember years ago, uh, on Tuesday night, I'd asked somebody to fill in. One of the elders, they're not here anymore, I asked him to fill in to pray. <clears throat> and I came in because I had something I had to do. I came in at the end of the meeting, prayer meeting, and he came up to me afterwards. He said, well, how did I do? I said, well, we'll find out when we, when you're, when we see whether your prayers are answered or not. How you did has nothing with how you sound. The purpose of prayer, this kind of prayer, is to get answers and to produce results. That's what prevailing prayer means. And so the disciples noticed something about Jesus that was different from all the other people that they'd ever heard prayer. And the thing, the two big things I think that they noticed, one of them I know for sure, is Jesus' prayers were always answered. 
You know, when you go to somebody to pray for you, especially if you're in a real bind, find out what their track record is. Some of you have relatives or people at work that kind of look down at you or they may persecute you or laugh at you. I've had that happen. <clears throat> Not here. <laughs> but in places I've worked before. And, 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 and I had, some of you get that on the way home. <clears throat> and, 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 but then I've had them, when they get in a real bind, they'll come and ask if you pray for them. Because somewhere they know you know God and they're hopeful that you can get through to Him where they couldn't. They saw something about Jesus. The first thing that is, was that his prayers were answered, and the second is he prayed with a boldness and an expectation that he was going to have an answer. And we'll see there's a connection between the two. So the first thing is, don't be like the hypocrites. They pray with a wrong motive. But you, when you pray, verse 6, go into your room, shut your door, and pray to your Father. And here's the next thing we saw. It's that we pray, and this is the foundation of, of prevailing prayer, is you're communicating with your Father in heaven. We're not throwing up prayers to a God somewhere up there. We're praying to our Father. That implies a relationship. Not just a relationship, but it tells us something about the relationship. It's a relationship of the one who begat you. Because a Father is not just an older figure in your life. You can have a father figure that's not your father. But your father, only one's your actual father, and that's the one whose seed you are. And so father implies that our life came from him, that there's a connection with him. That's a connection of the, of our, the one who has given his life to form us, and our life is formed out of him. So it's not some distant, all-powerful being. It is a father who decided he wanted you. I'm going to say that again. It's a father who decided he wanted you to the point he gave his only begotten son's life so he could have you. So when you pray, realize who you're talking to, you're not just talking to the great and, you know, great and awesome Oz. <laughs> you're not just talking to the great and mighty, all-powerful God. That's who He is, but He's your Father. We talked last time. For some of us, that doesn't conjure up the best of images. In some of your cases, it doesn't conjure up an image at all. Well, that's an image of somebody that just wasn't there. And so we have to renew our mind to who this father is. This fa even if you have the best possible natural father, this father is infinitely better. Infinitely more loving and infinitely more capable than your father and my father. And so the beginning of it is renewing our mind to who this one is that we're praying to, that we're asking. He's the one who gave us life, so he cares about us. Then we go down into verse 7. It says, when you pray, do not use vain, that means empty, powerless repetitions as the heathen do or the Gentiles do. Those are people that can't call him father. He's their God, their creator, but he's not their father. So they have no relationship on which to rely when they communicate to him. 
He might hear their cry and grant them mercy, but they have no basis for having confidence that he's there to answer their prayers. But we do. So he says, don't be like them, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. In other words, their confidence is on how they're praying. This is that subtle difference. Their confidence is on them and the way they're doing it. And Jesus says, don't come with your confidences in you, confidence in you and how you're doing it. Well, how are we to come? Don't be like them. And he's going to tell them what we're to understand. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask. And we spent a good bit of time last week on that. And just, you need to meditate on that. Just let that sink in. What it means that your father in heaven, for him to know what you need before you ask, means he must have been paying attention to you. He must be aware of you and your needs. In fact, if you read in other places, you'll find out he knows needs you don't know you have. He's your father who begat you, who gave you life. He's, you're his idea. You're his creation. He wants you. And he wants you to come to him. And he always not, he's not, you don't have to talk him into anything. He wants you to come because he's ready to answer. But he needs you to come and ask. We'll learn later why. And that's what we spent time on last time. He knows what you need, have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. And then he goes through what we call the Lord's Prayer. We'll look, talk about, then we may talk about that later. But tonight I want to go over and look at something else. Let's go over to chapter 7. Verse 7, still part of this same teaching. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. That's an amazing statement. And he who seeks, finds. And he him who knocks, to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, there are a lot of things you can look at here, but the thing I want to look at tonight, that what's really want to begin to look at tonight, is the certainty with which he's talking about. He's not saying, ask and you might receive. Listen to that. Confidence. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. No, this is not somebody's religion. This is Jesus Amen. teaching his disciples how to pray. Amen. Now, notice the first requirement. This is so simple. And I've mentioned it before. It's so simple. Ask. I've told you before, the one prayer I guarantee you that will never be answered is the one you don't ask. <laughs> James 4.2 says, you have not because you ask not. 
Not because he doesn't want to. Now, there are other things we'll look at. But the beginning is, ask. And there are many things that we know we have need of, or if we don't, people we care about have need of, that we don't ask for. Because if we really believe that, this place would be full on Tuesday nights. Now, I know there's some that can't come, but there's a whole lot more that can come that don't come, and it's not because there's a lack of needs. It's because they don't really believe that if we ask, we'll receive. But he says it. Jesus. And this is not out of context. He's teaching them to pray. And so the first step after you understand who you're talking to is to open your mouth and ask. And you need to ask yourself. And this is how God began to open this whole subject up to me in me by by pointing out to me that even when I did ask, he said, what are you expecting? Because sometimes, this talks about motive again, sometimes we pray because we're supposed to. I'm going to say that over here. Sometimes we pray, many times we pray, because we know we're supposed to. And it's good to do things you're supposed to, but if it's just doing it out of an obligation, imagine what that sounds like to God. Because we, we're not saying this, but this is really what we're saying on the inside. I really don't want to do this because I think it's a waste of time. I'm not, I don't think anything very good is going to come out of this, but I'm going to feel guilty if I don't. So here I come. And I'm not sharing that to be condemning to us. It's just to begin to look at ourselves honestly and see where we are and to look honestly at what goes on inside of us about our prayer life, either when we pray or when we're not praying and we know we need to pray. There's a confidence in this, a boldness in this. Ask, and you will receive. Expect to receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock. And the door will be opened to you. Now I've read different studies and different, you know, explanations of the difference between ask, seek, and knock. It makes an acronym ASK, ask, seek, knock. You know, asking is for things you need. Seeking is for things that are lost. Knocking is for things that you need to understand. And, I, and all that's good. It's all true. But really what he's talking about, he's not trying to be so refined that there's this huge difference between asking, seeking, and knocking. That's wonderful because that helps apply more broadly. But often we're looking over those little distinctions and we miss the big message. The big message is here is ask and you will get an answer. There's a certainty about it. That's part of what they saw in him. He's so certain, and I mentioned this before, in John chapter 11, when he's standing in front of Lazarus' tomb about to raise him from the dead, he has one of the few, and we'll talk about this later too, he has one of the few conversations openly with God. You notice most of the time when Jesus has prevailing prayer about things, he's not talking directly to the Father. He's speaking to the circumstance. 
Why? Why does he speak to the circumstance and not say, God, would you do this? He gives us the answer in John chapter 11. He says, Father, I'm going to say this out loud now. Because I, I know you always do what I ask. In fact, let's go over and look at that. Keep something here. We'll be back, maybe. John chapter 11. We'll start in verse 39. He's come. Jairus is dead four days. And Jairus was a, was a friend of Not Jairus. Jairus didn't, wasn't dead. Uh, uh, Lazarus was dead four days. Thank you. And Mary and Martha both cried, and, and, and he's wept with them, and he comes to the tomb. Verse 39, he says, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of whom was dead, who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time, you sure you want to do that? Has it occurred to you that there's going to be a strong odor coming forth? By this time there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that, isn't that interesting? God tells us to do something, and we have, God, have you thought about something? (laughs) Think about that a second. This is God saying, take the stone away, and Martha saying, you sure that's a good idea? Maybe you ought to rethink that because there's something you don't know. You don't seem to remember that he's been dead four days and mm, he's likely to stink. Oh, this is good. I just saw something. Oh. God's come to raise her brother up. It's what they've wanted. He's come and said, I'm here. And he's telling her, them, their part in the miracle, because often there's a part we have to play. And they've got to do that part by faith. And instead of doing what he said to do, she's reasoning with him about whether this makes sense. Think about this. First of all, in their minds, it's too late. He should have come four days earlier. So they've given up. But he hasn't. Oh, I love this. Romans 4, verse 17 and 18. says, The God that Abraham believed raises the dead. I was praying for somebody this morning who has there's an organ that's not working right in their body. That's what's causing the condition. That's just not working. I started speaking to the organ, that part of their body. And I said, wait a minute. God, if you can raise the dead, you can cause this organ to work. He can cause that organ to work. He can speak to your drums. He can speak. God's, God's creates. That's where all this came from. God, and he still does. He hasn't changed. He's not worn out. This universe is still expanding because of the power of those words, let there be. God sees things in terms of what He can do. We often see things in terms of what we can understand. That's why 
the Bible says there are certain things God tries to get through to us that are beyond our understanding. Peace that passes understanding. The love of God that passes on, goes way beyond your mind. Because God's way beyond our mind. And in their natural thinking, it's too late because once you're dead, you're dead. But Jesus has come to do what their, what's beyond their minds in answer to their desire, but he's able to do things beyond, exceedingly abundantly beyond what they can think or ask. But the problems he's having is with their thinking. So here he is, God, who's come to say, I'm here to raise your brother from the dead. And she's looking at him, and he's told her them what to do, and she's arguing with him by saying, Lord, there's something you must have overlooked, or have you forgotten? Haven't you? You're not thinking straight. It's going to smell. Well, so what if it smelled? If you can get your brother back. Our thinking is often so governed by the way we were raised and the way the world thinks that we limit what God can do in our lives. And it affects what we asked for. And here's a great example of him coming to do something beyond what they can think and ask for. Just because he cares. Move the stone away. But he's, by now it's four. It's, he stinks. Lord, don't you realize after four days? Don't, Lord, don't you realize? God? Don't you understand that dead bodies after four days stink? Like he's never seen one. He's so good. He's so patient with us. And he said, did I not say to you? If you would believe, you would see the glory of God. If you would believe, if you're willing to set aside your understanding and just simply believe, didn't I promise you you'd see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, that's what we're talking about, and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. He hasn't said anything yet. I thank you that you've heard me. For I know that you always hear me. Wow. He must believe Matthew 7, 7. (laughs) Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. But this is because he's Jesus. This is because he's the Son of God. But... The next verse in Matthew 7 says, Everyone who asks, everyone who asks, not everyone, everyone who asks, everyone who asks, everyone who asks. In the multitudes where Jesus healed people, there were people that didn't get healed only because they didn't ask. But there's not one example that you can find in the Gospels of someone that asked Jesus that he did not answer and heal. You can find people he healed that didn't ask, 
but you can't find anybody that asked that he didn't answer. And in most cases, he answered the way they asked him to do it. We've got to renew our minds to what God is like. We talked about that last time. We've got to get rid of the religious tradition and the religious ideas of what God is like and allow the Spirit of God to take this Word and introduce Him to us in terms of who He is and what He wants to do in your life, what He's willing to do if we'll just ask. Father, I know you always do what I ask you to do. I know you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they might believe that you sent me. In other words, I don't need to talk to you. Because I know you always do what I say here. Didn't he tell his disciples, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it? If you ask anything in my name? And didn't they then act on that? Peter and John at the gate beautiful. They come up to this man who's never walked. His legs are twisted. And he's begging for money. And Peter says, well, I don't have money to give you, but I got something much better. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. What he had was then the authority to speak to that condition. And the father would answer it just as he did for Jesus. Father, I know you always hear me. Always hear me. I know it. I'm not hoping for. A lot of the times when we pray, it's like taking this need and kind of throwing it up in the air and hoping it sticks. (laughs) I had a... Oh, I'll tell it. I had a stepbrother... He's not alive anymore. I've told you, my mother had a rule. We had to eat certain things. And we have to eat all of it. We had to eat some of it. And I love egg salad sandwiches, but this brother didn't. He hated it. They were to him like lima beans were to me. I love lima beans now, and I love egg salad. And, and she had this sandwich in front of him, and then she left the room. <laughs> and he took it and went, whoo, like that. <laughs> And it's stuck to the ceiling for a while until she came in. Plop. And for some of us, that's what our prayers are like. I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to throw this prayer up and hope it sticks. Oh, God answered my prayers. Plop. Oh, I guess he doesn't answer my prayers. Jesus was completely confident. And notice he's talking to his father as his father. I know you always hear me when I pray. Ask and you'll receive. You will receive. But but, But I haven't always. Forget what you haven't. Forget your past history. If you, if you hang on to your past history, you're going to be dragging a lot of old garbage behind you as you learn to pray. Amen. You've got to let it go. Just cut it off and start over again. Because the disciples had a bunch of stuff they were dragging around too. Traditions of man. 
failures of the past, things they had questions about. You've got to let it go if you're going to learn to pray effectual, fervent prayer and allow him to teach you with a clean slate. You've got to let it go. Your mind will struggle with that because your mind still has the, in its memory banks those things that you think you've asked for. You've got to let it go. You can't think of, well, somebody else prayed for that situation and it didn't happen. You've got to let it all go. We're, we're in kindergarten. We're in kindergarten learning in the Lord's school of prayer. Ask and you will receive. That's what I want to hear tonight. Believe God just wants us to hear the certainty, the confidence. Ask and you will receive. To the point that if I've asked and I don't, it don't receive, then I've got to find out why. Because the answer is never that God's not willing. The answer is never. Now, there are things outside of His will, and we'll talk about that. You can't be asking for somebody else's wife. All right? That's outside of God's will. So don't, you won't have any certainty for that. In fact, you can have a certainty He won't answer it. Or at least not a way you'd like. So, I mean, that's kind of ridiculous, but I mean, so there's, but most of those things are really obvious when we talk about it, and we'll learn how to handle that. But we're assuming right now that you've got enough common sense that you're asking for something that you know is God's will. Certainty. So that if I don't see an answer at some point, I've got to go find out why, because I should have. Ask and you will receive. All right. Let's begin to look. Let's go to um, James chapter 1. We talked last time that there are principles of prayer. They're not rules because rules are things that you abide by in order to earn the result. We talked about that before. So I'm not going to spend time going back over that. But there are certain principles which just by the nature of who God is and who we are, they, they're, they're like, they're, they're, they, they exist. But they're not hard. They're really simple. We make them hard. I know James was in here this afternoon. Here it is. Okay. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Let him ask of God who gives to... Preachers liberally, who gives to people that have been walking with the Lord for a long time liberally, who gives to people who've been praying a long time for something liberally, no, who gives to all liberally. And he who gives to all liberally and without reproach. So you don't have to worry that God's going to laugh at you or criticize you for what you've asked for or how you've asked. He's, at, he's told you to come and ask. Why would he criticize you for doing what he's told you to do? Without reproach, and it will be given. There's that same certainty. Ah, verse 6, but here's an issue. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. So now we realize we're looking at a principle that's not just asking for wisdom. Wisdom is one area where this applies in asking, but it's for anything you ask for. Let him ask in faith. So the first principle of answered prayer is we must ask in faith. So we're going to talk about that for a little while. We must ask in faith. We must let him ask in faith with no doubting. You must ask in faith. Now the word doubt is an interesting word in Greek. The word in Greek is diakrino. Krino means to think, and dio means to have two versions of. So the word actually means to have two minds about something. To, to, to not just one, single, you can be single-mindedly wrong. That's not doubt. That's just wrong. Doubt is where you look at what's true, and then you look at what's not true, and you keep going back and fourth, it's having two minds about the same, two different minds about the same thing. So what that is, is to see where God makes a promise to us, or hear a message like from when Brother Cook was here, or even tonight, and get all encouraged, and say, ah, I see it, and I'm going to believe God for that. And before we leave here, you prayed or you get home and you prayed and you just know that God's answered your prayer and you get up the next morning and everything looks just the opposite of what you prayed for and now you begin to think, well, maybe it isn't true. You've gone from one mind to another mind. And that's what the word doubt means. And he says, and do not doubt For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, around here, we have some idea of what that's like. Because if you go down to Newport or you go down to the shore anywhere, especially on a rough day, you see the waves breaking, and they don't control where they're going to go. They're at the mercy of the wind. When the wind is calm, the waves are calm. When the wind is high, it raises the waves up, and it will blow them in whatever direction the winds are, because the sea is at mercy of the wind. And what he's saying here is when we're doubting, when we're in that mode of diacrino, of two minds, we're going from one mind to the other mind. We're going from one mind to the other mind. We're going from one mind to the other mind. We're going from one mind to the other mind. I believe God always answers my prayer. Oh, the symptoms haven't gone away. I'm not sure what's happening. The next day I believe, you read the word, somebody says something, gives you encouragement. Now I believe, then the next thing I know, I don't believe. And we're going back and forth. Back and forth. You can see where when you're doing that, how unstable you are. All it takes is a little gust from the enemy to blow you over and blow you off what you ask God for. Double-minded. Now, one of the things about the Word of God, which comes out of His nature, 
is God will never tell us to do something we can't do. Because the other side of being double-minded is what? Being, sing, not hard, single-minded. And so we can learn to not be double-minded because the Bible says here, do not doubt. Now go with me to Mark chapter 11. I want to show you another version of the same thing. Understand that in the process of of asking and receiving, there's three parties involved. There's you, there's your heavenly Father, and then we have an enemy who does not want you to receive what you've asked for. Mark 11 very familiar verses. But let's start in verse... Let's go back to the beginning here. And let's go... Um, verse 12. The next day when they had come from from Bethany, he was hungry, Jesus. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit of you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now drop down to verse 20, because now we're the next day. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw that the fig tree was dried from the roots up. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Now stop here a second. Because I want to address something that if you study commentaries, that sometimes you'll find people teach you that this, this fig tree was a parable that Jesus was using to refer to Israel or something else, referring to the fact that its fruit was dried up and Israel's fruit was dried up. That's a classic case of outthinking, overthinking the Word of God. It tells you what He's doing here. He cursed it, it says in verse 14, and his disciples heard it. If the purpose of this story was so that there would be a a parable in the Bible where God is talking about Israel's fruit was going to dry up, not their literal fruit, but their spiritual fruit was going to dry up, then why would it be critical for us to know his disciples heard it? Even more so. Down, when we get down into verse 21, Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you've cursed has withered away. Now, Jesus is about to answer what this is all about. He doesn't say anything about Israel. He doesn't say anything about a parable, because there are times he does tell them he's making saying a parable. He doesn't say anything about some theological message here. They're asking him a question, how did that happen? And he's going to teach him how to do what he just did. It's that simple. So they, what people miss when they read what Jesus did is they don't realize he's praying when he cursed the fig tree. Because now we're understanding not every, Jesus, every one of Jesus' prayers was, Oh, Father, please cause this tree to wither up. He didn't need to talk to God. God had already told him, Whatever you ask, I'm going to do it. So he says, he just, and you notice he doesn't jump up and down and spit and yell. He doesn't, he's not fervent 
the way we've often read James 5. He just believes it's working. (laughs) So he just says, let no man eat fruit of you anymore and goes on. He walks past it the next morning and he doesn't even give it a second look. He's not amazed that it's withered from the roots up. By the way, the fact that it says from the roots up is significant because that tells us that the tree isn't just, you know, suffering from disease. It's shriveled up. It's Trees don't, when they may die suddenly, but they don't shrivel from the roots up suddenly. That's a process of time, and that happened overnight. So Jesus is teaching them, here's a teaching opportunity. I'm not sure he even did it for that reason. But now that they've asked him, and that's often the method of teaching in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it tells a father to make your, have your children memorize the story of Israel. And when they ask you what it means, then explain it to them. Our method of teaching in our Western society is all wrong. Well, not all wrong, but it, it's, there's, there's a fundamental error in it. We try to teach children at an age they sometimes are not ready to learn. So what they did is they made them memorize it. So when they finally said, why are we learning that? They were ready to understand the meaning of it. Now, that's just a little side. And so he's doing that here. He just did it. He's walking past, and they say, Master, Peter says, the the, the fig tree you cursed, it shriveled from the roots up. Now Jesus sees a teaching opportunity here. Verse 22, he answers, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed, be cast in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. So we see now that it's not simply asking and receiving. There's got to be something in our asking that believes that he's going to answer it. And part of that asking, part of that believing, is that we do not doubt. In fact, what you'll see is they're mutually exclusive. You can't believe the way he's talking about believing and doubt. Now, it's possible to believe the way we mean believe, because that's when we're on this side. But then when the wind changes direction and we blow to the other side, we're no longer believing. That's not the believing he's talking about. That's what we often... But, Pastor, I believed. I know I believed. Well, you may have in the way you meant. But we need to find out what he means by it. Because what he means by it is guaranteed to work. But often what we think believing is, is a degree of believing, but it's this kind of believing. It's believing based on things that are not solid ground so that when the wind blows this way, we don't blow back this way. But the believing he's talking about is securely planted on something other than what this believing's planted on. Because this believing's planted on often sense knowledge evidence. 
I felt God answered my prayer. I felt the presence of God. I, I felt goosebumps. Or it looks like he's answered it. That's a form of believing, but that's not his kind of believing. That's believing on one foot. It works as long as the wind's not blowing. But but the moment the storm begins to pick up and the wind begins to blow, we go to the other. Because you see, we're basing it on the wrong foundation. We're basing it on what we think. We're basing it on what we see. We're basing it on what we feel. And sometimes that looks like it's going to be answered. And sometimes it looks like it's not going to be answered. But in either case, it's wrong basis. It'll start us. It'll inspire you. It'll inspire you. But he, he doesn't say... He doesn't listen, listen. He doesn't say, "Whoever says unto this mountain, be removed and cast," and does not doubt in his heart, but is inspired about those things that will be done. There's a difference between being inspired about something and believing something. Ask Peter when he walked on the water. He was inspired and believed for a point of time. But then when he stopped standing on what Jesus said and started standing on the experience he was having and he noticed the wind and waves, he shifted to the other side and went down. And what did Jesus say to him when he got back in the boat? Why did you doubt? Peter, you were out there. Why did you doubt. He stepped out on the word come, but somewhere between stepping out and getting to Jesus, he started trusting in the experience he was having and not the word come. I'll end with this because we'll pick up here, but this is we're really opening this area about believing how critical it is. Oftentimes or sometimes we get people come to us and there's a very serious condition and physical condition in their body and, and we'll pray for them and we'll believe with them and take the word of God and, uh, and pray over them and believe them. And then they'll come back to us and say, Pastor, I got test results back and the test results are good. They're, they're, you know, the, 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 the disease is going away or this is coming to happen. And I'll always warn them. I say, that's wonderful. But the temptation is this. The temptation is when we prayed, you believed that God was going to do for you what you asked him because of what his word says so. Now what happens very subtly is now you begin to get positive, natural, physical evidence that the prayers are being answered and we suddenly, subtly shift over to putting our trust in what the doctor said. And that's sometimes, not always, sometimes is Satan's setup to knock you over. We've got to know what the foundation of what we're believing is. We can be believing, but not on the right foundation. Because if we believe on the right foundation, he has promised us that if we ask, we will receive. Amen.